Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. All right, we're going to switch up gears here and take you back to Truist Park and talk about one of my favorite things, the food. The new baseball season brings new food items to the Truist Park menu, so you want to bring your appetite and an open mind. And Jerry Carnes got one of the coolest uh, assignments today. He's introducing us to the new flavors of the ballpark. Move over, Peanuts and Cracker Jacks. It's time for some ballpark food that's the taste of the town. The inspiration is really Braves country, right? First, I want to take Braves country. Once I understand what those elements were with Braves country, then put them into some dishes. How do you get more Braves country than a BLT that uses bologna as the B? Fried bologna, that is. I can see the pimento cheese. That's right. This BLT also has a P. Pimento cheese. Three thumbs up. This season at Truist Park, you can munch on a cleanup burger. Four hamburger patties with waffles for a bun. Fried egg on there. It's home fried potatoes on there. A little maple syrup, spicy maple syrup. That was probably the one that we don't want you to count calories, right? So when you come to the stadium, there's no counting calories, right? You want to be able to have some fun. Don't bring your calorie counter to the ballpark if you plan to dive into this three-foot-long sub sandwich. Designed for eight people, but if you want to spend 80 bucks, you can have it all to yourself. There's the Dewey dog and Dewey sausage topped with chili and fried onions. There are dishes with a Caribbean flair. Chef Louis Matarano wants to make sure his dishes cover every corner of Braves country. The, the cultures of, of Georgia are, uh, are huge. We have such a great big melting pot here and I want to want to bring more of that in. Where have you been all my life? He had me at fried bologna and pimento cheese. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Man, I'm hungry. I don't know about you. I'll start taking your orders in just a few minutes. But hi there. My name is Tim Hanlon, and it is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. Uh, beyond uh, wetting your appetite, we are going to get into a, a heady topic this week as uh, something that we've kind of nibbled around on a lot of different occasions when we talk about various stadiums of the past and, frankly, our little uh, jaded view on perhaps where pro sports is going now in the big era of private equity and all these uh, outrageous valuations and, and expectations of such. Uh, and the topic this week and the title this week is Mall Parks. This is the book that's written by our guest this week, Michael Friedman. Uh, he, a uh, professor at the University of Maryland, and his new book, uh, courtesy of the Cornell University Press, is called Mall Parks, Baseball Stadiums and the Culture of Consumption. And as you can get uh, the drift by, pretty quickly by all those food offerings in the, at this year's uh, Atlanta Braves games and the title of this book, uh, we're going to be sort of talking about this sort of uh, this collision, I guess, between functional uh, stadium and ballpark and that of the creature comforts and the expectations of fans and their owners of creating experiences, food being prime among them. But but also just, you know, it's it's not about going to the game anymore and watching nine players on a team playing each other and in, in a battle of skill and and wits and strategy. Uh, aided by now a, a pitch clock and some other sort of innovations. 
Uh, but it's also about what kind of food am I going to have and and how comfortable are the seats and and where am I sitting relative to my my other friends or the uh, the hoi polloi, shall we say? Or you know, how can we make the uh, the environment more exciting? Are there any other attractions uh, in the stadium, around the stadium, uh, in the general vicinity? And that's kind of the uh, the topic uh, at hand this week as we talk about sort of this collision between uh, sport and commerce. This is a fascinating topic, and I think all of you will enjoy it. And it's also not new. Uh, you'll hear in our conversation coming up with Michael in a few minutes, uh, the idea of uh, baseball being a big business uh, is not new. It goes back, frankly, to the earliest days of when professionalism started to creep into the game. Uh, and obviously, baseball is the longest standing in American sports uh, professionalism, for sure. And that's hence the sort of a focus on on baseball specific. But it's not unique just to baseball, right? Anytime we see uh, cities being shaken down for new billion-dollar stadiums here and uh, construction projects there, and, and whether Las Vegas and the A's or you know the Buffalo Bills new stadium or, or the shakedown that went out in Nashville to get the Titans new, on and on and on. And, and that clip that you heard at the beginning, uh, it really, I think, is probably the uh, most, uh, I don't, I would call it most extreme version. Uh, it's Jerry Carnes from, uh, WXIA TV channel, uh, 11, 11 alive in Atlanta. That was a piece that he did, uh, about two months ago, which is now becoming pretty common for just about every ballpark. Now the, the PR, uh, starts in earnest as the season sort of get, gets, uh, gets going. What's the new food, uh, uh lineup going to be the, this season? Uh, and that's of course just one piece of it, but but Atlanta's stadium is is frankly I think the uh, the template for where most of this is going in stadium land these days, and that is uh, it's a it's real estate it's a real estate play. Truist Park uh, sits in uh, a brand new development that uh, was opened in 2017. Uh, it's about 10 miles northwest of downtown Atlanta in Cobb County, and um, it is a stadium that sits literally within the midst of a, uh, I, there's no better word for a complex, uh, a, b- a business complex of office buildings. There's a hotel in there. Uh, there's some other sort of attractions. Uh, it is called the Battery Atlanta. It is literally a destination and even work-oriented uh, real estate development in which a baseball park has been sort of centered in the midst of. And if you uh, truly, if you want to be cynical about professional sports, uh, look no further than uh, this development, uh, and maybe even the Chicago Cubs building around Wrigley Field. Uh, you look about every what the Chicago Bears are supposedly trying to do in in suburban Arlington Heights here in northern uh, Illinois. Um, it's all about what's around and within the stadium environment beyond just the game. It's about all the various attractions and things that can keep people occupied and entertained uh, and perhaps even distracted if they're not doing very well on the field. Uh, And we see it over and over and over again. We see it with the A's going to, we think, Las Vegas. We see it in the developments uh, around the Phoenix Coyotes NHL thing going on there, if they still stay there. Um, And it's it's, it's almost now part and parcel of uh, the expectation now of fans and uh, and teams, frankly, to generate new revenue streams and all of that kind of stuff. But we're going to kind of dial all that back and sort of see how we kind of got here. Uh, is it a good thing? Uh, is it uh, potentially artificially inflating uh, the franchise values of these teams? Um, 
And where does it go from here? How can it get much more than this at this point? I mean, do do we need cars picking you up and privately driving you to the stadium or maybe not even going to the games anymore at that, maybe with virtual reality? I don't know where it all leads, but um, it ain't your your dad's ballpark experience and and getting a hot dog and getting mustard all over yourself and and, and maybe a a Coke or a Pepsi on top of it. It's so much more than that. Uh, And we're going to get into that, what I think is a fascinating uh, conversation and uh, discussion around uh, mall parks and how we sort of got to this point with our guest this week, Professor Michael Friedman. He, the author of said uh, book, and um, it, it's a very interesting conversation. You could maybe even call it perhaps a, a companion uh, to our episode number 123 from b- back in July of 2019 uh, with our friend Paul Goldberger uh, when we we're talking about various uh, ballparks and from an architectural perspective and where they sit sort of in in urban design and, and the American city and that kind of stuff. Uh, I think this is a very good tentpole uh, or um, parallel to that conversation. So give that a listen as well. But stay tuned for this one. I think you'll enjoy it very much. And uh, I think the uh, most appropriate sponsor we can offer up uh, for you this week is our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, and uh, if you haven't partaken of uh, the various wares offered to you by OldSchoolShirts.com, well, please uh, stop what you're doing, stop this podcast, and go uh, uh, to Sweet to OldSchoolShirts.com and search up just, just about any team or league uh, in the past, but also, I think uniquely and curiously for this episode, two interesting uh, zones uh, on the website that uh, you can uh, understand as sort of being foundational to this conversation. One is a section called Dead Malls. So if you remember various malls from growing up in places like, you know, in suburban Cleveland, Ohio, like Randall Park in North Randall, Ohio, or, um, you know, uh, the Northland Mall, uh, the Six Flags Mall, um, perhaps you remember uh, the... Um, Northwest Mall in Houston, Texas, or the Uptown Square Mall in New Orleans. Those uh, East Town Mall for you, our friends in Knoxville. Um, those are these are amazing places that we spent a lot of our youth in, uh, sort of just uh, killing time and maybe even making some purchases and stuff. These are all lovingly uh, remembered and created for you uh, and awaiting you uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com for purchase. Uh, if there's a mall that you remember fondly uh, by hanging out in those hollowed halls, well, there's here's your place to go uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com. Now, then you can go over to the stadiums section. So if you remember the Summit in Houston or perhaps Aloha Stadium, which is sort of being reinvented or rethought in, in Honolulu, Metropolitan Stadium in Minnesota, which, as you probably know now, is where the Mall of America now sits, um, et cetera. You can go to that section at OldSchoolShirts.com and and blend the two. So take one or two from the Dead Mall section and then buy a shirt or two from the Stadium section, and you'll be fully prepared to enjoy the the uh, the, the background and uh, and the fulfillment of this episode uh, as we devote our conversation to mall parks. But check them out, and it's not just that, but all kinds of teams and leagues and cities and various collections. All there for you at OldSchoolShirts.com. The quality is excellent. You can choose different sizes and shapes and forms. And of course, we have a promo code for you there too. It's good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code good seats for 10% off. 
off. Thank you to OldSchoolShirts.com for your continued patronage and support of this show. And of course, we thank you, kind listener, for listening on to what I think is a fascinating discussion about mall parks. Let's talk about how we got here from the humble old days of little fields and and, and ballparks that just, you know, were, were there to d- design for you just to sit and enjoy a baseball game or two. Now it's so much more. Here's our conversation that we have with Michael Friedman uh, just a couple of days back. So please, as always, enjoy. I, I was fascinated when this book sort of crossed my uh, my radar because uh, it is absolutely, I guess, a lament of ours and uh, and I guess a source of intrigue uh, as uh, I guess you could say baseball has become more corporate, although it's maybe not necessarily a new thing if you look back in history. But before we sort of j- jump right into that, um, I-, I would love you to kind of set up for our audience uh, who you are, your background, uh, and your entree into this uh, into this tome, um, because you do set it out in the beginning of this book, actually quite personally, uh, from a, a bunch of different angles that seem to intersect. Yes. Uh, well, uh, I am a lecturer at the University of Maryland. Uh, got my PhD there in 2008. And I've been studying stadiums uh, you know, from an academic perspective, probably going back almost 25 years. I I did my master's thesis on the football stadium in Nashville, the the politics that surrounded that, and then a couple of projects uh, while I was working on my PhD, uh, looked at Camden Yards, looked at Fenway Park, uh, even uh, spent some time looking at Tiger Stadium and in its final days, and uh, I wrote my dissertation on Nationals Park here in Washington, D.C. So academically, I've been uh, really just focused on this subject for a number of years. Now, personally, in the summer of 1984, I was 13 years old, and my father picked me up for my brother's graduation, high school graduation in Nashville, Tennessee. And for the next six weeks, he drove me around the country. The The two of us were together. We were going from city to city, stadium to stadium. Uh, over those six weeks, we were able to see 21 of the 26 ballparks that were in operation then. Uh, two I had seen previously. So on that trip, I could say by the summer of nineteen, by by the end of the summer of nineteen eighty four, I had seen uh, games at uh, twenty three of twenty six major league ballparks. Uh, continued to 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 go to a few. Now there was a period for about three months uh, at the end of twenty nineteen when I could say that I've been to every major league stadium that is in current use. Uh, however, I haven't made it down to the new one in Texas yet. So uh, right now I'm I'm stuck at 49 uh, stadiums, uh, major league stadiums, where I've seen baseball games. Seems to be a moving target, right? I mean, as we, as we record this, right, we're talking about Oakland, presumably going to Las Vegas and and Nashville, your your uh, your home environs. Uh, 
uh, circling more with uh, intensity, I think, around either getting an expansion or a relocated franchise and and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's I hate to say they make more, but I mean, and also not to sort of delve into sort of the field of streams, field of streams, geez, field of schemes. Sorry, a very uh, uh, excellent blog, which I'm sure you follow, right? Yes. The um, the intensity around how. Uh, not only uh, uh, ballparks, but stadiums generally and arenas. Uh, uh, you don't come at this from an economic perspective or a political perspective per se, though, right? No, I don't. I mean, I, I, the 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 economics of stadiums not only are pretty clear. I mean, they're they're terrible deals. But every economist who has ever looked at this from a neutral perspective, i.e., somebody not being paid by the teams or the cities to uh, produce a uh, a study that justifies the level of uh, public expenditure. Every economist who've looked at, who have looked at this neutrally have said there's no no positive benefits. Uh, certainly not a benefit that justifies the level of spending. A few people have found some positive effects, but very small, very minor. Uh, the politics of this, uh, again, there's a, a, a lot of um, converging opinion on uh, why these stadiums get built because uh, they're asking the public for a lot of money, but at a subsidy of 50 or $100 per year per person, that's not exactly going to be uh, causing massive resistance uh, because government spends a lot of money on things that people don't like, but people don't don't fight either. Um, and of course, on the other end of the equation, you have billionaire team owners getting these massive subsidies. You have uh, players getting lots of money. You have construction interests, big business everybody's doing really well with these stadiums. So there's, and of course the media as well. So there tends to be kind of that, the, the old saw concentrated benefits and diffused costs where I'm looking at this is pretty much saying almost those two are given. So let's take a look at how stadiums really fit into our communities. How can we understand uh, a stadium from the way it it sits in a city and impacts the surrounding area? How can we understand how a baseball stadium sits in people's memories uh, and um, you know the ways that those memories are recycled uh, in the stadium itself in its design and the in the ways that that the stadium is decorated. And then uh, also keeping in mind that ever since uh, 1862, when Bill Kammeyer uh, built the Union Grounds in, in Brooklyn, every one of these stadiums, ballparks, super stadiums, baseball grounds, however you want to describe them, going back to day one, it's about making making a dollar. It's about charging people uh, good money to see high quality baseball. 
and figuring out how to really maximize the dollars people are going to spend watching baseball. Yeah, I mean, you bring up uh, Cam Iyer, uh, which is uh, mentioned in your book as a sort of foundational uh, component to this, uh, kind of showing that, um, you know, which is sort of my, I guess, my next sort of question is that none of this is new. It's probably just grander and deeper and more robust and perhaps maybe more fraught with economic perils should things go awry. But I, I, you know, your your um, your citation of Camire at the Union grounds in Brooklyn in, in 1862, uh, in essence, it's also a little bit of the economics, I guess, of a captive audience, right? Because that that was, as you described, uh, the first baseball facility, essentially a field uh, to enclose itself, right, or to be enclosed, which in essence meant or hinted at the eventuality of paying for the privilege of such, right? This is not an open field kind of come one, come all kind of thing. And and there the economics, I guess, sort of become rooted in, and perhaps uh, unwittingly what we have morphed into today. Well, I mean, baseball has been a business really ever since the, the late 1850s. Uh, and the, the, the people who are operating it have just gotten more sophisticated and the dollars involved have just increased over time and uh it's no surprise that we've gotten to where we've gotten today because uh team owners are just looking at it and saying okay how can we get every nickel of spending that we can can achieve all right so i want to kind of get 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 to the sort of uh, the groundings of, of this because this is this is a very rich book obviously very sort of with an academic bent to it but there's there's plenty of accessibility i guess to the i wouldn't call it average fan but the uh, well, shall we say the sophisticated fan i perhaps i consider myself as one on an occasion um but you know it's sort of a thinking man's kind of approach to this kind of stuff because you know we we've uh, tackled this a little bit uh, from an architectural perspective with our uh, our pal um Paul Goldberger um, uh, a couple of years back, um, uh, but this is sort of a, a sort of a, a broader, I think, um, sort of approach here. I I love how you start in this book, though, um, beyond your personal uh, experiences of uh, your baseball uh, going to games at, at the tender age of thirteen, which has a psychological effect, I think, perhaps. So there's there's no doubt about that. But I love you. You start with sort of a, almost an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, with a uh, recounting of a little bit of a, a sense of the Mall of America, which stands today, and what preceded it, which is the old Metropolitan Stadium in Minneapolis. Um, did you intend on that to be sort of the case? Because uh, you cannot think of a a, a greater contrast yet uh, a thematic uh, than to kind of <laughs> root uh, a lot of your thesis in that very location. Well, I... I think a lot of this is just kind of the the serendipity of field work that you go out uh, into uh, into different cities, you go to these different spaces, and I mean, yes, I had known that the old Met was out in Bloomington, and I knew that the Mall of America was out in Bloomington, and then. Yes, I went to the Mall of America because, of course, you, you you do that when you are in Minneapolis in that in, in that area. I mean, it's the biggest tourist draw, I think, in the entire Midwest uh, is, is the Mall of America. And 
just walking around and you know seeing Harmon Killebrew's chair ensconced up in the wall, you know, 500 whatever feet away where he hit his longest home run. So in 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 some ways as I was kind of putting you know framing the 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 idea for the book, the concept for the book, um, you know, the Mall of America, the prototypical, it's kind of the 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 best example of the American shopping mall literally being on top of what used to be a baseball stadium. And then the fact that the public transit line from Bloomington into Minneapolis begins at Mall of America and ends at Target Field. I mean, that was just a matter of serendipity right there. It was just too good to pass up. So I'm an English major from undergrad. Can a metaphor be ironic? Because in this case, it, uh, it, that almost seems like that's the best definition um, because a, a lot of the, your thematic here is rooted in uh, the the consumption bias, I guess, or activities of of what today's sort of society is sort of rooted in and focused on. And and it's hard to sort of it's it's hard to extract the two things because here is baseball, sort of America's pastime, and 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 with with great uh, lore and history and nostalgia. Uh, childhood memories, as you and I have kind of hinted at uh, uh, as well. You know, there's a psychological pull and attraction, at least historically, to that game, not necessarily other sports too, uh, but certainly that one. And that of modern day society, which is very oriented towards consumption, shall we say. Maybe maybe a few minutes about sort of how you sort of frame that logic of consumption sort of driving some of this narrative. Well, one one of my professors at Maryland uh, is George Ritzer. Um, he's written a, a number of books about the sociology of consumption. He came up with the theory of McDonaldization. He's really written a lot about how um, you know this idea of that 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 consumption is really the uh, engine driving our economy. Marx focused a lot on on production and uh well in our society today it's consumption that 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 drives our economic uh our economic life our our economy uh, and frankly, even even now the socialization of that it's almost sort of a becoming a rite of ritual where you sort of brag and show off and and social that's that drives your your social uh uh, communication, shall we say, and almost a, a, a status, if you will, in a sort of a bizarre and maybe perverse way. Well, I mean, consumption has always had a had an element of show, especially among amongst elite consumption. And you know, this idea of conspicuous consumption that you it, it isn't enough to be living the good life. It's about the the world seeing that you're living the good life and because you're able to get live the, the this great life um you know that confers status and significance and importance on a person um you know and, and I think a lot of our entertainment uh, a lot of reality tv is all about you know let's see how the 
the rich and the famous live. Let's see their their sports cars and their mansions and their private jets. And you know, let let's let's look at all of that and be envious because these are the people that really made it in America. And but but this form of conspicuous consumption is not just for the rich. Well, if you can't afford a Rolls Royce, well, there's a Mercedes. And if you can't buy a Mercedes, there's a Lexus. And if you can't buy a Lexus, there's um you know, there's a BMW or a or 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 a Toyota or whatever. I mean, all of the things that we buy not only get us our cars not only get us from point A to point B, but they communicate something about ourselves. A pickup truck, uh, you know, it it, it matters. Um, you know that that you're telling the world this is who I am by the things that I buy, the things that I drive, the things that I wear. I'm going to signal. I am going to signal to you my politics. I'm going to signal to you my wealth. I'm going to signal to you my values. I am going to let you know by the way that I consume that you're going to read a lot about me, that that just looking at me, you're going to know something about me. And, and of course, as we are all uh, very sophisticated consumers of our culture, we look at other people and again, we read you know what what they've bought what they're wearing and we know a lot about them just from the image they uh they, they project how does that eventually fuse and i know we're kind of skimming across uh, there's a whole thesis and, and and it's 300 and some odd pages of, of goodness here in this book and i highly rec- recommend it to more of our more astute listeners uh, where does how does that fuse that sort of general sort of thematic uh, into the uh, I guess you could call it the evolution and you do frame uh, sort of a series of evolutions if you will of ballpark construction uh, into what is now as you're terming it the mall parkization if you will the mall parks kind of dynamic because in some respects my my sort of when you just describe that it, my head kind of goes to sort of that sort of proverbial big boys and their toys. And historically, right, that's been men generally, usually, uh, with money, usually uh, either ill-gotten in some cases or uh, begotten from fortunes derived from other things outside of sports because sports itself was never really sort of the economic engine it is today. But, you know, and, and buying, if you will, a trophy property, in that of a of a of a team, a professional team, and or either influencing or uh, creating and building or some combination thereof of the structure in which said team is also playing. Um, I, there's a lot in there, but I would say you know in the sort of history of say baseball and and sports generally in the United States, you know by I would even say not until fair until fairly recently. That was pretty much the the purview, the domain. It was a rarefied small group of people who had large checks who could afford that ultimate toy uh, and uh, and bring it into a city or a region uh, near them or you. 
Yeah, I mean that that we are talking about historically rich man's toys. I mean that I mean, yes, uh let's say a lot of early baseball teams were owned by people like uh like Spalding or uh Comiskey or uh or, or the Griffith family. You know, people or or Connie Mack, people who had been in baseball and worked their way into management and eventually ownership of, of teams. But we also have to realize that a lot of uh, early team owners, um, you know, looked at team ownership as a way to uh, do something that was politically popular or, um, you know, lever leverage uh, the stadium, put the stadium at the end of a trolley line that, the team owner owned or i mean the you know the story of, of fenway park it's fenway park because um you know the 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 taylor family that owned the boston red sox uh in, in 1912 owned an awful lot of real estate in the boston fens so they built a stadium amongst their real estate holdings called it fenway park wrote about it an awful lot in their newspaper and sold some real estate. Um, you know, so, um, you know, and then you have a lot of state, you know, a lot of teams that, that become rich man's toys, but, you know, Phil Wrigley buys uh, the Chicago Cubs, renames the stadium Wrigley field, not necessarily because he was, um, uh, narcissistic and wanted to promote himself, he was selling his Wrigley gum. Uh, August Bush, when he bought the, the, the Cardinals in 1952, uh, first thing he wanted to do was, um, you know, he bought Sportsman's Park uh, as well from, from the Browns. And the first thing he wanted to do was rename uh, the, the stadium Budweiser Field. Major League Baseball, the commissioner's office, told him that he couldn't uh, name the the stadium after his beer. Uh, I guess it was too commercial for baseball in the 1950s. Uh, so August Bush did the next best thing. He named the stadium after himself. And then he went out and produced a beer, Bush beer, that he named after himself that the stadium just happened to also promote. I guess kind of that Wrigley Field exemption uh, gets carried across. And then, of course, you have a lot of people who are just sportsmen, people like Tom Yawkey, who bought the, the Red Sox as a personal toy, or somebody like Eugene Kaufman buying the Kansas City Royals and uh, spending his own money to um, you know have a winning team during the 1980s, uh, you know, back when... You could lose a few million dollars and, you know, win yourself a championship because, you know, we're not talking about $300 million payrolls. We're probably talking about $10, 15000000 million payrolls, which at the time, if you were extremely wealthy, was much more of a sportsman's toy than, than the big business it is now. Well, take us through sort of this other um, uh, thematic uh stream here, uh, which is uh, sort of, I guess, uh, to encapsulate in, in layman's terms, um, sort of more of a, an understanding, I guess, of the evolution of 
uh, how space uh, it was used or approached. Uh, it's obviously a bit more architectural um, and maybe aligns a bit with uh, our, our chat with uh, with Paul Goldberger back uh, a bunch of years ago. Uh, uh, the, the whole notion, though, of what the idea of a baseball park and or stadium, obviously it's part of the evolution, um, sort of uh, evolved along with sort of this consumptive thing that you're 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 uh, hinting at too, right? And the and the big boys recognizing that over time, decades, that you know the, um, I guess the um, the medium, so to speak, is the message here too. Though the place in which uh, this uh, uh, excitement, this game, this commerce uh, is occurring, uh, may not just be about decent sight lines and how many fans we can get to pay to watch the game. There's there's seemingly other things that can be uh, aligned with, augmented by, um, added to the quote-unquote experience uh, of going to the old ball game. Well, I, I think we're really talking about uh, um, an evolution that really starts 160 years ago. That you know, the question is... Um, what can we get people to buy when they're at the stadium, when they're at the ballpark? Uh, you know, pay money to get through the gate. Well, you're inside the gate, and it takes probably close to 55 years, um, yeah, probably about 55 years from the time that Cam Meyer put a gate or you know, a fence around the field until Charles Wiegman basically decides, well. We have all these people coming from the outside, walking up and down our stadium, selling stuff. Uh, I'm going to put in concession stands. I'm going to sell food. And then as, you know, that then everybody is looking at, at the Cubs and you know, Wrigley Field and seeing them selling hot food and the team making the money. I mean, uh, obviously uh, uh, farming a lot of it out to... Uh, let's say concessionaires like uh, Harry M. Stevens, that, you know, that, 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 you know, that's one more thing we can sell. We can sell uh, a, a few souvenirs. We can sell uh, a few different types of foods. And then, you know, as the 1960s and that generation of stadiums come around, uh, People who were building those were saying, okay, what else can we do besides beer and soda and hot dogs and ice cream? And, you know, with all these really modern and beautiful new super stadiums that we see during the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, they're diversifying the, the, the menu. They're offering more forms of souvenirs but i think where the explosion happens is during the 1980s and it's a convergence of a few different things first off um you know there are you know the 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 economics of sport were changing dramatically that uh for example in 1977, when Major League Baseball expanded into Seattle and, and in Toronto, uh, teams were sold for about seven and a quarter million dollars each, seven and a half million dollars each. So, but but 
when the expansion takes place into Colorado and Miami in the 90s, now we're talking $95 million for an expansion franchise. So I won't say it goes overnight from uh, something that could be a rich man's toy to a really expensive corporate enterprise. But you know that that that's the transition taking place in the '80s. We also see um, HOK Sport uh, really establishing itself and saying we're going to build these stadiums all over the country. We know what we're doing. We have the specialty practice. We know how to calculate every dollar or every square foot and put a dollar value on it and how it's going to enhance the experience. And then you have Camden Yards, uh, you know, the Orioles under uh, Larry Lucchino, uh, Eli Jacobs and, and, and the vision uh, and well, their vision and uh, the execution by Janet Marie Smith, where they say, yeah, the, the, these functional facilities um uh, they may be great they may enable a lot of different events to take place but we want to create a ballpark we want to create a space where going to a baseball game is about the game itself where people can enjoy some nostalgia think back to the way things were but we want people to be comfortable. We want people to be able to, to do all the shopping. So by uh, the 90s, we have kind of this first iteration of the mall park, which is, uh, as I describe in the book, uh, a really a, a merger of a shopping mall, a theme park, and a ballpark within that singular space. Well, let's do, let's drill down a little bit on Camden Yards because that, that uh, is 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 clearly ground zero, I think, for for sort of the modern projection of what what you're talking about here, and and refined and or augmented or or uh, I, I don't know Frankenstein uh, since, but we'll we'll get to that a little bit. But um, I, there's a lot going on here with this, right? You mentioned sort of the confluence of the team. Uh, the uh, in this case the Maryland Stadium Authority, which is sort of the government agency that was uh, created to sort of uh, bring this into into being, and obviously the economics of that, the politics of that, HOK Sports, which you mentioned, is one of sort of the the leading architects. There are a few others out there too, uh, not just in baseball but other other sports as well. Um, but it, it's really interesting sort of dynamic because it's it's you, you described it right. It's really kind of a retro thing here, right? Where it's like we're going back, if you will. To tap into that nostalgia, uh, uh, sort of aesthetically get into the game of uh, uh, pre presentation and, and harken back, if you will, to sort of the, uh, if you will, the golden age, if you will, of how the game was played and and, and yet making it sort of comfortable with all the modern conveniences. Um, I guess the question in there or the sort of observation perhaps is it feels a bit devious uh, in its construct, right? Uh, I'm not sure that everybody who is participating in the creation of this sort of felt that way, but 
there's a psychology at play, right? This is this this is the game of baseball. There is nostalgia there. It is multi or intergenerational. Uh, it's it's the pastime of the of the United States. So it has a long arc of history and and uh, and connotes a lot of memories, personal and and beyond. Um, but when you sort of bring in all that consumptive uh, 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 stuff that you're talking about uh, previously, and and recognizing that. Uh, the commerce is uh, literally a uh, a memory blip away from your seat or or, or walking to it. Um, it feels a bit manipulative if you if you think about it. Um, am I reading too much into that, or is that sort of thematically correct? Well, I mean, I, th- I obviously I think there's a, a good deal of manipulation to it. Uh, I, I think that when we trade in nostalgia in general, there is always going to be manipulation. It's a it's a version of the past, and there are many versions of the past, many stories about the past that 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 can be told. Um, you know that you know, for instance, at Camden Yards, um, you know, at Camden Station, and in, in eighteen seventy seven, there was uh, a major labor riot that uh, resulted in the massacre of a number of. Uh, unionized uh, uh, workers on strike. Uh, and, and there's a small plaque outside of uh, uh, Camden Yards just off the street that that uh, mentions uh, this event. But of course, inside Camden Yards, well, Babe Ruth's father had his pub in, 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 in what is now center field. So the question is, you know, which story are you telling about, you know, which story are you going to tell? And and obviously that's that's a choice that uh, Orioles management, uh, Maryland Stadium Authority and HOK came to that. Yes, we're going to tell the story about baseball's past. And of course, I think more than any other sport, baseball trades on its history. All right, what's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, Fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is, uh, and just about every league that's ever existed, save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of uh, the WFL. Remember the World Football League? How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your. All of them and many, many, many more. Available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. 
you can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. And by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd, and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. Well, you're mentioning Camden Yards, which is sort of a, 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 an attempt to retro, go retro with the future sort of uh, neatly embedded. But you also describe, I think it's in your sixth uh, chapter six, uh, that the, the a number, not too many, but certainly a, a number of uh, uh, of ballparks uh, are not immune historically to uh, retrofitting their uh, uh, their structures as well. You mentioned Fenway, clearly Wrigley Field, and now the sprawling environs or, or fast becoming sprawling environs nearby, uh, Dodger Stadium, um, and a few others, right? So that's almost a, a little bit of a different and more, I guess, tricky trick uh, in that uh, one has to, you know, do this sort of uh, 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 mollification within the boundaries literally of the old ballpark so to speak um and not sort of creating something new or new old uh from whole cloth right i i mean that the, the thing about wrigley field fenway park and uh dodger stadium first we have to recognize that uh even before camden yards was built the experience at Fenway Park in 1989 was vastly different than the experience of Fenway Park in 1960, vastly different than 1940, vastly different than in 1920. Um, Dodger Stadium has evolved over time. You know, these are living, breathing spaces that, that you know, it, it's more than just a coat of paint that uh, and uh open up the gates for the next season uh you know that uh they were always making changes uh to these stadiums i mean i i think part of the great nostalgia for a place like ebbets field uh is that it stopped changing when the dodgers left and it got consigned to 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 memory and history when it got knocked down in the 60s uh because you know Fenway Park it kept changing Wrigley Field they put lights up there in in 1988 i mean that that uh in order to be viable these stadiums have always 
had to make changes. And I think the challenge for uh, the Cubs, uh, the the Dodgers, and the Red Sox uh, was, you know, at, at the start of the 21st century was, okay, Camden Yards and its imitators have all the 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 charm of 20th early 20th century baseball but i mean i don't know if you've been out to the grandstands in fenway park sure that's not a comfortable experience no it's not i mean you're at a narrow seat the 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 your your knees are in the back of the person in front of you and you're you're getting really close to to other Fenway to, to other Red Sox fans uh because you know that's how people sat in the 1930s when when Tom Yawkey renovated the ballpark to 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 what we see now well, yeah, and, sorry, and and Wrigley is, it has its own quirks and stuff too. I mean, there are there are girders, right? That are that that, that obstruct views, right? That's a that's a, an anathema in today's sort of modern uh, realm, right? Of, of ballparks and whatnot. But you know, that's still the historical charm. But it also outlines, uh, shall we say, the limitations. I mean, I my hint to, on on the Wrigley thing was, and I know that more intimately because I live in Chicago. Um, you know, if you can't. Whatever you can't do inside the stadium now has become seemingly a real estate play in and around the stadium uh, leading up to uh, maybe it has nothing to do with the game at all, per se. But the attraction is now becoming more year round and surrounding the game where the game is just but a component of a, a larger, at least desired experience. Well, that that that's what we're selling nowadays. Are these experiences? Um, actually, Bill Veck recognized that in the nineteen nineteen forties was that he was selling an experience of baseball. He knew that the people coming through his gates were not going to be the uh, hardcore. Uh, can tell you how the team did eight years ago and compare um you know the right you know today's right fielder to the guy who played right field 35 years ago i mean those are the core fans those are the you know the 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 hardcore but most people coming to to watch baseball are going to to the game to be entertained and you know sometimes that entertainment Hopefully that entertainment is the game. Um much more watchable this year than uh the, the, than previous, to tell you the truth. Uh, but it's gonna be the game and yeah, that that's the core product. But when you're at the game, well, let's have food that's good. Let's have um you know, let let let's learn something about the game. Let's make sure the kids who were there aren't going to be bored out of their mind and they can burn off some energy and they can interact with the mascot and they might, you know, and, 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 and people might learn something about the team's history in the, in the museum. And there are just multiple ways to be entertained. And obviously multiple ways to be entertained mean multiple ways to, 
get people to buy stuff. And, and I think, you know, one of the challenges for, uh, for Fenway Park, since I, you know, that's uh, that and Dodger Stadium were the two that I looked at in depth is that, well, first, Fenway Park, they had to rec- realize that, well, they had to to determine if the stadium itself could remain viable, had the electrical capacity to run pizza ovens, or had the uh, workout room for the players uh, so they could uh, be professional for the eight hours that they are physically on site, that they could do the workouts and that they could go in the indoor batting cages and, you know, just make sure that it's viable from a um, functional standpoint. And once it was viable from a functional standpoint, then they tried to figure out if it was viable from an economic standpoint where they ca- could do, you know, where, where they could make money. And with, uh, with Wrigley, it is a real estate play. You know, it is uh, putting more things on that block using kind of all, you know, every available space. Yeah. That, that it isn't just, it isn't good enough anymore to have um, a building sitting on the site that, for all intents and purposes, is just there operating as a bunch of storerooms. Everything has to have uh, a, a financial return to it. And I think that's what we see, certainly with uh, the renovations they've done at Wrigley. Do, do you think perhaps we're at the cusp of maybe another era, so to speak? Because, uh, I, I, you know, I think the ultimate expression of this perhaps is uh, what the uh, Braves did down in Atlanta with Truist Park. And uh literally just moving right out of anything close to the center of Atlanta going to uh, a, a a suburb uh north of and I, I guess it could be best described as sort of it's almost like a corporate uh real estate kind of environment which just happens to have a baseball stadium in the middle of it now I don't know how destination oriented that is I mean arguably what they're trying to do at Wrigley is to make it more of a a thematic destination I guess perhaps what the angels have been trying to do, uh, despite various shenanigans of local government and and other other <laughs> distractions, trying to kind of uh, radiate out a bit from from the ballpark's uh, 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 you know uh, geography there to kind of en- encompass some other things that can go beyond the ballpark itself. I, I don't know. It feels to me like uh, certain things are being lost in this process, where or when. A ballpark is but a building in a multi-building uh, complex, uh, and to your point, your your discretion, a real estate play, right? And 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 I think that has been the direction that it's going. I think by the late, uh, I, I guess, early two thousands or late two thousands, uh, populous as it as, as HOK Sport rebranded itself. Uh, and probably figured out how to maximize the financial return of every square foot of public facing space in a stadium and how to most effectively use 
you know, all of the uh, backstage spaces, um, you know, again, to maximize that, that, that economic return uh, and uh, the functionality of the stadium. And, you know, we, we, we look around the, the stadiums and they have, I mean, I remember as I was going on my trip uh, with my father that I think there were five or six different varieties of seats seats you could buy, going from about four dollars up to the like kind of the twelve or fifteen dollar box seats that were just like really expensive. I mean, we were splurging when we got when when we spent that fifteen dollars on a box seat. You know, now electron, you know, the 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 electronic ticketing systems that they have are not only so sophisticated that they now break down stadiums into like 20 different areas that they can sell tickets for. I mean, not even talking about kind of the, the $100 or $200 luxury, uh, you know, club seat. But, you know, we have, you know, $60 tickets, $55 tickets, $53 tickets. It's and, almost it's almost dynamic, like dynamic pricing and, and, and the data attached to that too. Right. And, and it is dynamic that they have figured out pretty much how, what, how much they can get for every single seat to, to, to absolutely maximize their revenue. And then they even have it figured out that, um, you know, that, 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 that when the Yankees are coming to town, those seats are going to be more expensive than the Royals are coming to town. So gone from six different Orioles, you know, six different prices to see an Orioles game in the early eighties to 120 different prices, depending on your seat, the day of the week and the opponent, um, you know, and, and 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 then inside with all the, the the different consumption opportunities, they really figured out how to get every dollar out uh, of, of people when they're at the games. So the the question then began became what's next, and what's next is the real estate play. Now somewhere like Wrigley Field. They had the real estate, they had the space, so you could build the complex that they built next to, to, to Wrigley Field because it was on Cubs property. What happened in Atlanta is just taking this 70-acre pristine piece of real estate and saying, and, and the Braves uh, saying, that we are going to develop this piece of land so every nickel that is spent by people who are not only coming to our games, but from the time they get out of their car till the time they get back in their car, the Braves are getting a taste of it. You know, if somebody's going to the pizza place, the Braves are getting a, a, a piece of it. If people are going to... Um, you know, to 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 sport and social at Battery Atlanta Live, the Braves are getting a piece of it. If somebody's staying at the Omni Hotel, the Braves are getting a piece of it. 
Uh, if somebody is working at Comcast or Xfinity or whatever it's called nowadays, the Braves are getting a piece of it. And it's just that 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 next evolution that it's not just what happens in the stadium, but it's about capturing the economic as much of the economic activity that happens outside of the stadium because they maximize what's going on inside. Now it's you know how do you, you know, with 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 team prices going from the hundreds of millions into the billions, how do you ensure that it go that the the team price goes from two billion to four billion over the next 15 years? And it's it's the real estate play uh that 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 does that. Yeah, I'm not an economist. I just play one on television. But I, I guess the the uh, the added wrinkle of that is um, uh, the arrival of private equity into this mixture. Um, and private equity does what private equity does. Um, and, you know, this is an asset class, if you will, that's been uh, historically sports teams in these closed leagues, largely, uh, you know, the the traditional model has been uh, you run the business or the enterprise as uh, as close to break even uh, as possible. Generally, losing money in the day to day, perhaps eking out a profit if you're if if you're successful in that regard, and the money is generally made on the uh, you know on the the transfer of the license, if you will, the franchise, the sale of such. Um, you know, for an enterprise value that's uh, in theory grown. Uh, to a substantial amount, hence it being a rich man's historically game, um, big boys and their toys. Um, but I think with the the arrival of all these just these myriad uh, revenue streams, a lot of which, not completely, but a lot of which have been facilitated by, I guess you could call it rethinking uh, what a stadium, a ballpark uh, is supposed to do besides just present the game. Um it seems like uh, a, 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 a lot of moneyed people are coming in from the outside looking at these as, um, shall we call them, maybe more short-term uh, value propositions and enterprises that can be perhaps in the next number of years flipped for higher valuations a little bit more quickly and more uh, with more liquidity than – uh, simply buying and holding, shall we say, over 10, 20 years, which has historically been kind of the the wealth generator of of, of franchises. Well, I mean, I, I think, again, we're in a completely different world. I mean, that, you know, 50 years ago when, uh, you know, a, 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 a millionaire could spend $5 million to buy a baseball team, uh, if, if he lost a couple hundred thousand or was breaking even over a, a over a period and selling it let's say during the 80s or, or 90s for 20 million dollars or 50 million dollars there's a lot of appreciation there that 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 they're capturing at the end but now we're not talking about a 5 million dollar investment we're talking about a 5 billion dollar investment and when you're talking about those sums of money, 
you know, when you're talking hundreds of millions and in, into the billions, uh, there is a demand for a return, an immediate return on investment. Maybe not necessarily, uh, you know, to to provide a eight percent return or a six percent return on capital uh, to ownership. You know, maybe they're not interest. You know, not necessarily needing that, but if they have two billion dollars in loans at four percent, well, that's eighty million dollars in debt service. So they're going to need solid revenue streams that are going to produce, um, you know, that that are going to produce real profits to 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 be able to to cover the cost of money. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to have a five million dollar investment that, for all intents and purposes, isn't producing revenue. On the other hand, when you're talking billions of dollars, it money has to come in. Yeah, you know, and, and, yeah and that's and, what these villages do for stadiums. Yeah, and and it 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 brings up some really existential sort of questions. So let me let me sort of cul-de-sac this uh, or round uh, round third base on this conversation with maybe your opinions, because uh, a lot of what you've laid out here is. Um, thematically extremely interesting and engrossing in certain many respects. Um, but I, personally, I'm not so sure that I necessarily like where all this is going. Now, that's my opinion. That's an old man yelling at the clouds or whatever that might be. But I'm curious as to, uh, through all of this investigation and this and the publishing of this and your, your academic um, uh, underpinnings prior to this, um, how do you sort of personally feel about this? I mean, you mentioned going to games when you were 13 and, and obviously you, you outlined the book by, by rooting it in some, some personal experiences, uh, watching the games and that kind of stuff. Um, are we, where are we headed with, with all of this sort of capital C commercialization of, of the game to these arguably very extreme uh, points now, um, some of which are, are still uncertain as to where they all sort of end up. What do you think is going to happen and or uh, how do you feel sort of about the game of baseball given all of this? Well, I mean, I, I think the game obviously is going to continue to to evolve. Uh, you know, I, I think what Major League Baseball has done this year uh, with the pitch clock, with the pace of the game, uh, with, with the various uh, shifts and rule changes that it's made, I, I, I think is making the product, the core product, much better and much more interesting. I think that uh, uh, sabermetrics, um, you know, just got to the point where they figured out they 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 cracked the code of baseball. They they figured out the most efficient way to play the game and frankly it became kind of boring and repetitive because everybody was doing the same things at least now um you know not only is 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 the pace up but they're figuring out different ways to play the game um you know so so i think on one hand you know we have the 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 game itself 
uh, adapting to uh, speak to the modern consumer, uh, but at the same time, or the modern sports fan at the same time, still not making such fundamental changes in the game that uh, it, it, it it's it you know it's still recognizable if you brought a baseball fan from the 1920s and showed them today's game. I don't think it would be that foreign to 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 his experience. Um, Except perhaps affordability. Affordability, and I and I and I, and I think that that that's where the commercialization of the game. Um, you know, I I I think in some ways is very short sighted because the the next generation has to be brought in. And it's one thing to um, make changes around the the margins of the game to ensure that the pace is such that uh, you know that 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 kids can can enjoy the game of baseball again. And I think that's very important. Uh, the challenge, of course, is affordability. I don't think a lot of teams are doing a very good job of it. Um, you know, obviously, you go to a minor league game; it's a lot more affordable to go to the minors, uh, and and can also be a great experience as well. Um, but I, I, but I think you know when 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 we're kind of looking at the architecture and and, and the development of stadiums currently, I. I as part of this research, uh, I, I went to a game at uh, the Oakland Coliseum, and oh boy, there you go! You were really oh, punishment there, but that to talk about visceral. Oh my God! But 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 I had to admit, um, you know, the Oakland Coliseum, which uh, uh, the book Dodger Dogs to Fenway Franks, a book about stadiums, written in I the got 80s. it on my shelf. Uh, um, it, it holds up, even though it doesn't, right? Right. I, I I mean it it ranked the Oakland Coliseum like in the top five of stadiums in the mid-80s. And I I I my father lived for a few years out in the San Francisco Bay Area. We went to to, to more than a, a few Oakland A's games. And I had no, found nothing wrong with the Coliseum. Now, when I went back there probably about seven, eight years ago, um it was such a terrible facility for baseball compared to everything else. Now, of course, it brought back a lot of nostalgia. I thought it, I mean, it was so terrible. It was wonderful in, in, in some respects. But, um, but it was also completely inadequate for what today's, um, not just baseball fan or sports fan wants, but today's consumer of entertainment. Uh, and yeah, that that's the dirty secret of baseball is that it's always been an entertainment product. I mean, that's what Bill Veck recognized in the 1940s is that people are spending good money to, to, to be entertained and, you know, you, perhaps you can't offer, you promise them that the baseball game that they're going to watch is going to be 
gripping or epic or close. The home team isn't always going to win. You you know you aren't going to see somebody hit three home runs. You know the 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 historic, you know the 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 historic things are 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 far and few between. Uh, but you give them some fireworks. You give them a mascot. You give them a museum. You give them a a kids area. You give them a an aquarium. You give them decent food. There's going to be something for everybody. So at the end of the night, they feel like they've had a good time. And that is what the Oakland Coliseum was completely incapable of providing to people. And that's what the stadiums back in the 80s really couldn't do, is that it gave you baseball but it didn't give you an entertainment experience. And that's the, uh, I guess that's the, that's the, uh, the crossroads we, we find ourselves in. And I think it's applicable too to, to sports generally, right? I mean, the, the explosion of major league soccer and their soccer specific stadium uh, approach, right? 20,000, 25,000, right? Not, not too big, but not too small. Um, and owning those revenue streams and, and, and I guess perhaps trying to ensure some level of, uh, durability uh, of those revenue streams, despite or in uh, a a team not doing well on the field per se, right? At least the attraction is still around and uh, open for business, so to speak. Oh yeah, a- a- absolutely. Because um, you know y- you have to give people value for money. Um, you know that that. You know, it's nice that the home team wins, but I, I want to make sure that 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 the evening was enjoyable. You know, that I've spent my money well to 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 go to a baseball game or to a soccer game or to a hockey game or 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 whatever. Because if I'm not going to a hockey game or a baseball game, I could be going to a concert. I could be going to the movies. I could be going to a restaurant. I could be putting that money aside so I can uh I can travel during the summer. I'm I'm going to spend that money on something that I'm going to have a good time with. And that's what you know and that that's the challenge that that all professional sports have is making sure that uh, they are providing uh, a, an entertainment experience that people will say, yeah, I want to do that again. All right, our thanks to Michael and the book is uh, a very interesting, intriguing and enjoyable read. Uh, it made me think a lot about where things stand in the realm of commercialism and, and sports and baseball in particular. And again, it is called Mall Parks, Baseball Stadiums and the Culture of Consumption. It is available now wherever you find good books. It is published by the University of Cornell or Cornell University, however they're calling themselves, Press Cornell University Press. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, wherever you get good books. And of course, the most uh, convenient way and the most uh, supportive way you can do so 
uh, Getting Said book uh, or Kindle version is to purchase it through our link on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 310 with Michael Friedman, and you will find a convenient link to this book or Kindle version. And we will get a couple of shekels of referral love, and we could not appreciate that more. It's the least you can do. It's the only thing we ask you for uh, to keep our lights on and and, uh, pay our bills. And uh, we appreciate that to no end. Uh, And again, while you're there at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, you can search up every single stinking episode we've ever done. We post them all there. Uh, If you're not subscribed or following us in your feeds, well, you should be doing that too. But uh, a convenient way to kind of just... drive around and sort of test drive, if you will, I guess a couple of episodes. Uh, That's the best place to do it. It's also uh, the most convenient place to see all the other books and movies we've highlighted and stuff and and that kind of stuff. Um, What else? You can send us email. By all means, please do that. We're at hello, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Yeah. Uh, We are on the socials. Twitter, you'll find us at goodseatsstill. On Instagram, you'll find us at goodseatsstillavailable. Uh, on uh, Facebook, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on YouTube, we're on the YouTube as well at Good Seats Still Available as well. Uh, our thanks, of course, to uh, Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. He, a uh, constant inhabitant of Truist Park and uh, the Atlanta Braves uh, season there. I'm sure he's had a few of the uh, novel new food items, and I'm sure he'll be able to uh, uh, t- taunt me with uh, various Uh, exploits of the fine uh, food that is available there for the rest of the season. Thank you all for listening. More fun and excitement coming your way next week. Stay tuned. Until then, check your feeds and uh, stay safe, everybody. Happy summer.